following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. If you have your Bibles, I'd like to ask you to turn them to Matthew chapter 11, please. Matthew chapter 11. In Matthew, uh, and by the way, for those of you that are online, um, if you go to the church website, fbcaa.org slash d-o-c-s, docs, you will find the notes for tonight's uh, service um, or message. Uh, I don't always put them on for Wednesday, but I had a few moments before we came tonight, and I thought, well, these notes might be helpful to someone, so I... uh, put them up there for you. So hopefully you can access those if you would like. We're just going to look at five verses this evening, Matthew chapter 11, verses 20 to 24. I wish I could say that the subject matter was uh, superbly uplifting, but if I read this text, you will see that it could be a little bit gloomy if you uh, take it that way. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 20, the text says, Then he began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Jesus is speaking here now. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. Note that pride. They are exalted to heaven. Okay, They will be brought down to Hades. This kind of evokes uh, the pride of Babylon. Uh, that's actually connected to the... Uh, text of scripture that we'll look in the Old Testament at in a moment, uh, as God wills. And then he says this, for if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say to you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Now, I just want to make a note about the structure of this little discourse that the Lord has given um, of, and it's really, it is a discourse of judgment. That's why I said it's a little bit gloomy. You know, it's not the most uplifting um, thing. But it, there are some truths here that we can glean that will be helpful to us, I think. First of all, I want you to notice the parallel structure of this discourse. The Lord has kind of broken it into two pieces or two parts. One, uh, first of all, the first uh, round, if you will, is with Chorazin and Bethsaida saying that because they did not repent, did you notice that at the end of verse 20? Because they did not repent. Because that, it would be more tolerable in the day of judgment than for two famous historical cities. Those historical cities were utterly destroyed, and it will be better, and you could say in some kind of hypothetical way, better for them, in a a real way too, than for these two contemporary cities of the Lord. In the second round, the Lord says basically the same thing. He wouldn't have to say this but to get the point across, but he does because then there's a third city, and that's Capernaum. So he attacks Capernaum and says that because they did not repent, they will go down to Hades. And then he says again the second time, it will be more tolerable in the day of judgment, just like he did before, and... 
the city this time that he cites as being better than Capernaum is what? Man, it's hard to say Sodom is better than anything, isn't it? But indeed, he says that. Um, Just a question for you. What do you notice that is the common thread that links Tyre, Sidon, and Sodom together? A common thread that links them together. I'll mention something about that at the end. Both parts of this statement, both rounds, if you will, round one, round two, have a counterfactual statement in them that is something that wasn't done, but if it had been done, then the response would have been, as the Lord says, if the works were done in you, that, or in them, rather, that have been done in you. So if that had been the case, then basically he's saying those cities would have responded favorably to what the Lord is saying. They would have been convinced. Those ancient cities would have been convinced to repent, but not so in the day of Jesus with these cities. Now, what about these cities? Let me give you some historical notes here. We have Chorazin and Bethsaida, Tyre and Sidon, Capernaum and Sodom. Okay, so we've got really two, three, four, five, six cities that were in the space of these few verses. Everybody would have known what these cities are. Even if you don't know what they are, they would have. Um, I mean, this is like saying Detroit and Chicago. Everybody knows. You know, and in fact, the two cities that he talks about, well, we're probably smaller than our modern Detroit and Chicago and certainly closer together. An hour's walk from uh, Capernaum to one of these other cities, Chorazin or Bethsaida. They were on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. So you can picture the Sea of Galilee, the Jordan River going down to the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea is down where Sodom was. In fact, Sodom is, is underwater, if you will. The location of that is under the Dead Sea. Okay? But you can picture that in your mind. And right at the north side of the Sea of Galilee or Sea of Chinnereth or Sea of Tiberias, as it's alternately called, you have... Chorazin and Bethsaida. Evidently, the Lord ministered there a number of times. Uh, In fact, in uh, Mark's gospel, I'll just turn to one portion there. It says in Mark's gospel 8 and verse 22, Then he came to Bethsaida, and they brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. And then he went out and took him out of town and, and did this healing uh, miracle on him, and he was able to see. That was Bethsaida. Luke chapter 9 has a similar, uh, similar mention of one of these cities. It says in Luke 9 and verse number 10, these words, and, when the, and the apostles, when they had returned, told him all that they had done. Then he took them and went aside privately into a deserted place belonging to the city called Bethsaida. So that was after the apostles had done their ministry around, around Israel. So there's Chorazin and Bethsaida. And in them were done many mighty works, many miracles. Here you have a guy who is blind who can suddenly see. Imagine the Lord Jesus coming into the city of Ann Arbor, raising the dead, healing people who are sick at University Hospital, at St. Joe Hospital, at VA Hospital. 
telling people their sins are forgiven, healing people out on the street, talking to the homeless people, forgiving sins, and the leaders and the populace saying, eh, no big deal. It will be worse for you than it was for Tyre and Sidon. And that's where we come to next, Tyre and Sidon. They were ancient cities in the far north of Israel. Now, these were on the Mediterranean coast. So if you think in your mind's eye of the nation of Israel, here, here's the Mediterranean Sea, and here's the kind of coastline of Israel. Way up there where Dan is, you know, at the northern t- part of, of the tribes, way up there on the coast is Tyre, and north of that is Sidon. Gentile cities, wicked cities. Ezekiel chapter 28 is given over to pronouncements of judgment against these two cities. In fact, Ezekiel 26, 27, and 28, especially 28, talks about both Tyre and Sidon and basically says the wrath of God is going to be poured out on these cities and that's it. They're, they're, going to be, they're going to be done. There's no doubt that these cities are going to be destroyed. In fact, they were, they were destroyed. The uh, fifth city on the list of our Lord is Capernaum. Now, this one really gravels me. This one gravels me. You know why? Matthew chapter 4.13 basically says this. Jesus moved out of Nazareth and he moved into Capernaum. Capernaum was his new home. He's a young man. He moves out of Nazareth, beginning of his ministry. He's about 29, 30 years old, and he moves into Capernaum. That's where he was. His home base was out of there. Matthew 13, he comes to his hometown, and... What does it say there? Do you remember in Matthew chapter 13? He could do no mighty work there because of their unbelief. In fact, he said, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country. In other words, if you take the nots and the withouts out of that, he's saying a prophet doesn't get honor in his own hometown. He might be recognized elsewhere, but you remember when he was read in the synagogue and they were like, "Who, who is this guy? Where does he get these words from? Isn't he... Joseph's son, a carpenter, aren't his brothers and his sisters with us? He's just a nobody. Where did this man learn letters? You know, how did he get to be so academic? And they just despised him, Capernaum. And then finally, number six city, and we could say seven as well, Sodom, and always goes, what goes with Sodom, the twin, Gomorrah, the two cities of the plain, Genesis 19 records the destruction of these cities because of their sin of homosexuality. They were shot through with immorality and with wickedness, and they were, in God's estimation, beyond recovery. Now, you might say, well, how does God know that? Well, God knows everything. If God estimates that something is beyond recovery, then you can take it to the bank. It's beyond recovery because he has more patience than you have, He has more love than you have. He has more kindness and mercy than you have. And it was time for them to be destroyed, and he did so. This city, Sodom, and Tyre, and Sidon were. Here's the thread. Evil, idolatrous, pagan cities. 
They were Gentile cities. But the Lord says to his contemporaries, it's going to be better for those Gentile cities than it's going to be for you. Now, to the Jewish ear, to the Jewish mind, I mean, that would just cause the gears to seize and the smoke to come out of the ears. They wouldn't be able to process that because Gentiles were dogs. Gentiles were pagans. We're the people of God. But if you don't repent, you're not the people of God any more than those Gentiles are. The Lord is teaching them. You don't repent of your sin. The evil of Israel does not excuse, by the way, the evil of Sodom. There's no hope that Sodom gets a do-over or Tyre and Sidon because there has been found someone more hardened in heart than they. But Israel was behaving worse than they did. We'll see why in just a moment. So, historical notes we've just completed. We've seen the structure of the text. Let's think of a couple theological issues before we have to close up for tonight. A couple of theological issues. One is this. This question comes up. Are there levels of punishment in hell? Are there levels of punishment in hell? It seems to be so, based on the text here and others, that there are levels of punishment. Consider with me for a moment Isaiah 14. Isaiah 14 and verse number 15. In Isaiah 14, there's the, uh, the speaking about the fall of the king of Babylon, and, and the Bible switches, it seems to me, from the person of the king of Babylon to that personage who is behind the king of Babylon, we call Satan, that energizing force behind the king of Babylon. And in 14.12, the Bible says, How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. And then it says in Isaiah 14.14, this is recording Lucifer's words, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. And then we often don't notice verse 15. Brother, we keep reminding of Obadiah. Although you put your house up in the cleft of the rock from there, I will bring you down. And here is a similar thing. Lucifer says, I'm going to be like the Most High. And God says, oh, no, you're not. In verse 15, you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. That's where I get the idea of, uh, in that text, of a level of punishment. He's going to the lowest Sheol, the lowest level, the, the, the most baddest part of, of Hades, of hell. Of, and I don't know how that all is going to work out exactly, but the height of arrogance leads to the depths of punishment. Let me say that again. The height of arrogance. The highest level of arrogance will lead to the lowest depths of hell. Okay? Arrogance is the quickest way to go to the deepest spot in the pit. If anyone deserves the worst compartment of the lake of fire, of course, it is the devil. Now, I had an interesting question from one of our sisters here about the lake of fire. And I thought I would just put a couple verses in the notes here for you tonight about that. Revelation 19.20, it says the beast and the false prophet will be cast into the lake of fire. 
Then there's a thousand years in which Satan is bound, it tells us. And then it says in Revelation 20 and verse number 10 that Satan himself is cast into the lake of fire. So you have the beast, the false prophet, and the and Satan himself. So you have the unholy trinity all cast into the lake of fire. And then one of the scariest verses in the Bible, God says, or Jesus actually says in Matthew chapter 25 at the judgment of the sheep and the goats. And he says to the goats on his left hand, depart from me into fire prepared for the devil and his angels. That is where they're going to go. And then in Revelation 20, verses 14 to 15, the Bible tells us that all those who are unbelievers will be raised up to life. They will stand before the great white throne. They will be judged by their works. Those aren't Christians now, friends. Those are unbelievers, non-Christians, who will be judged at that particular tribunal. They will be judged, and if they, their, their works will be examined out of the books of their works, they will be found wanting because they don't believe in Christ. And it says, all of them will be cast into the lake of fire that burns forever and ever. That's the lake of fire. So it was initially created for the devil and his angels, for the beast and the false prophet, for Lucifer himself. But it also is an appropriate holding pen for all eternity for those who reject God. Levels of punishment. Speaking of Egypt, the prophet is told by God that their graves will be in the recesses or remotest parts of the pit. That's Ezekiel 32. Deuteronomy 32 also may be involved here. It talks about the depths of Sheol, although I admit that can be also um, just speaking about the, the grave or the world of the dead. Psalm 86.13 is another verse along that same line. Now, I don't know what the practical difference is, in those different levels of punishment because the least of those, if I could say it that way, is still the wrath of God. So we're not, we don't get into, you know, speculation about what exactly it looks like, you know, is the temperature hotter? Is the misery worse? I don't know exactly how that works. We'll leave that to God and we don't even want to go there. Corresponding to the level of punishment, is another related question, and that is the level of accountability. The level of accountability is elevated when you have an elevated additional revelation, particularly when the revelation is direct and in person. What do I mean by that? What I mean is the Lord Jesus Christ shows up on the streets of Capernaum. He shows up in person, in the flesh, in, in Chorazin and Bethsaida, and Caesarea, and Jerusalem, and Bethlehem, and all these places in the flesh. And he works these miracles, and he teaches, and he calls people to repent. And he answers people's questions. In Luke chapter 12, verse 47 to 48, it says, He who did not know his master's will will be beaten with few stripes. But he who knew the master's will and did not do it will be beaten with many stripes. For unto whom much is given, much is required. I've often said this, but it bears repeating here that we of all people on the earth, of all people in world history, have been given the fullness of divine revelation. We have it in written form. It's unchanging. 
we can examine it, we can think about it, we can study it, we can memorize it, we can pray with it. We have less than zero excuse. If we ignore what we are told, if we disobey what we're told in the Bible, if we don't care about what we're told, then it's on us. It's on us. To whom much is given, to whom much is given, much is required. We have no excuse, my friends. It bears repeating over and over in our minds. We don't have a personal representation of the Lord here, but we have his word, which describes in the fullness who Jesus is, what he has done, what he is like, his father, the whole program of God. We have even more than the people of Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum and Bethlehem and Judea and and Jerusalem and all. We have more than they had. We have the whole New Testament. They didn't have that. They had Genesis through Malachi, and then what John the Baptist taught them and what Jesus taught them. That's it. We have all that plus, 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 plus. The whole issue is repentance. Verse 20 says, His mighty works were done in these cities, but he began to rebuke them because they did not repent. Repentance takes humility. It takes honesty. It takes setting aside pride. Remember that? Lucifer's pride, I will be like the Most High. It takes setting aside pride. And the honesty side of it is to set aside self-deception. Self-deception. I had an occasion just recently to see a, a new kind of face on the doctrine of sin, that somebody's portraying sin is kind of doesn't matter before you reach a certain age. Uh, you can sin as a youngster, and it doesn't count in your relationship to God. Uh, intentions don't necessarily result or amount to sin. This is self-deception. This is redefining sin so that you don't feel so bad about yourself. Repentance is the response that you make at the door. I'm talking about the capital D, door. Jesus said, I am the door. He who enters in by me shall find pasture and life. When you come to that door that leads to the road of eternal life, the key to, if you will, pass over the threshold of that door is repentance, repentant faith. Had the residents of those cities turned from their sins and believed in the Messiah who was among them, they would have been saved. But they weren't. Now, as I close, just let me mention two other thoughts here. Compare the responses of John the Baptist to the crowds to these cities. John the Baptist wanted to know what's going on. He had doubts, but he did not have ultimately unbelief. And he didn't have unrepentance because he was the messenger of repentance. So Jesus did those works, and that showed John who Jesus is, and that reassured John in his depression in prison. But this generation, the Lord said, in verse 16, what shall I liken this generation to? Well, he said, they're, un, they're implacable. You can't please them. You do one thing, they're not happy. You do the opposite, they're not happy with that either. John came, and he's a very ascetic kind of a monk. They don't like it. Jesus came, he eats with tax collectors and sinners, he goes to weddings, he, he's out and about among the people. They don't like that either. You can't, you can't make them happy. And then the Lord gives these rebukes to these three cities. 
the cities had actually seen the works of Christ, just like John's disciples did see them, the same works, and they did not care about the implication of those works for their lives. That's the illustration. Bring it home to Ann Arbor. If a man comes in and claims to be the Son of God and then proves it with his works, and you just say, eh, whatever, you're not thinking about your soul? You're not thinking about repentance? And this brings me to my final point. It's somewhat of a, of a dissonance in our minds to think of what was happening there, the large crowds that seemed to be following Jesus, yet he says of these communities as a whole, they're, it's, it's, they're, they're in bad shape. They won't repent. They won't turn away from their sin. What is, what's going on here? Are the crowds large or are the, are the cities? Or, or what happened here? I mean, if, if the crowds were large following Jesus, then why weren't these cities turning to him in mass? Well, a couple things were happening. Number one, remember like in John 6, large crowds heard him speak about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, and they said, this is a hard saying. Who can hear it? And many of them left. So the large crowds became whittled down. And even if there were quite large crowds, perhaps thousands, perhaps there were tens of thousands in these cities who just ignored Jesus and went on about their business the way that it was. He was a passing curiosity. Oh, that's interesting. You know, what, what, do I, what am I doing tomorrow? What's for dinner tonight? And just move on as if nothing was different. Maybe the crowds were large, but the unbelief was larger. Perhaps the crowds came at first, but as the novelty wore off, they went back to their normal business. And the Lord said, if you do not repent, you'll be cast down to Hades. Let's not be those kind, but let's be the kind that follow the Lord in faith. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this night and for the opportunity we've had to look at the word. Help us to take these sobering words and to put them to good profit in our souls. Help us to be humble. Help us not to be self-deceived, but rather to be honest with ourselves to cast out the desire to make ourselves feel or look better, but simply repent and turn to Christ in humble faith. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.